Um, how are we doing? Good. Good morning, Breakthrough. For everyone visiting us in person, and if this message goes online to all the hundreds and thousands of people all across the world listening to this message. Um, so, my name is Isaac Raj. My wife and I were on leadership before Breakthrough got planted as a church. Um, we've seen Breakthrough be a worship group of five, six, seven people in a basement to 40 people in a hot attic at John Mark Pantana's house um, to the basement of a church, to another church, to a coffee shop, and, and hopefully to a, a building soon. <clears throat> so when I was at Breakthrough, I was on the teaching team. Me and Andrew would switch off preaching. It was fun. We're very different. We have very different styles. Um, and it was fun. When I stepped down, the Lord said that he wouldn't stop giving me messages, but they would be for me and not other people. <sighs> And that's bad news for y'all because the Lord's not as gentle with me as he is with some of (laughs) y'all. So this message is, disclaimer, this is a message that the Lord gave to me that I'm kind of giving you insight on. Um, So today I want to talk about authenticity. Being authentic, what that means, how to do it, yada, yada, yada. Dr. Dehadi Lewis um, is a pastor at a church um, right in the neighborhood that Martin Luther King grew up in. Uh, He's one of the mentors of our current pastor now. And he says this phrase, he says, the next great revival may not look like a stage or a stadium or lights or speakers, but leaders and believers being authentic. The next great revival will be a revival of authenticity. And so I want to talk tonight about, today, about authenticity um, and what that looks like. So I'm going to start off with a story. So there was once this man named Jesus, and Jesus was getting pretty popular, started getting more and more Instagram followers, and this man comes up to him, this young man, and the account of Mark says that this man falls on his knees in front of Jesus and basically says, Lord, I want to be saved. And Jesus looks at him and says, great, um, have you kept the commandments? He's like, yes. And he goes through the list. Have you done this one? Have you done this one? Have you done this one? He's like, yes, yes, yes. And then Jesus digs a little deeper and says, great, there's one thing that you lack. I need you to sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me, and I'll give you treasures in heaven like you've never seen. Uh, Jesus did this because he knew that he was a rich man. You see, it's kind of interesting because if we were here in church and we saw a a young man fall on his knees and go to the altar and say, Lord, I want to be saved, we would say, great, accept Jesus in your heart and you're saved. But Jesus isn't fooled, right? Because he knew that there was a hard part of this man's heart that whether it was going to be next month, next year, 10 years, or 40 years from now would have actually kept him from being a true follower of Jesus. And so Jesus digs a little deeper and, and actually looks into his heart. And Jesus having, you know, foreknowledge and just, just says, all right, there's a part of you in your heart. You hold on to money. I need you to give that up. And it says that this man walked away grieved. It's very interesting because there's something about Jesus when you look at the stories that he creates no space for inauthenticity. He goes and and there's multitudes that come to him. There are thousands of people like there is in this room right now just following Jesus. And he gives them a harder message and a harder message until some fall away and some fall away and some fall away. And then he looks at his own disciples when it's just them. And he says, do y'all want to go away too? Jesus has no grid for inauthenticity when it comes to his kingdom. 
And so when we talk about authenticity, we got to be careful that we, we do the world's definition and then the biblical definition. The world says that authentic means just be you, boo. Just be you. You are made the way that you are. You need to just find a way to be more of yourself. But the biblical view says you need to be less of yourself. Authenticity in the biblical view means that I need to die to myself daily. I wasn't made to be me. I was made to be him. And I need to authentically kill away the parts of me that don't look like him. <clears throat> but here's the thing. It's not just the world that's preaching this kind of message, right? And, in, um, you know, I, I, I got a lot of thoughts on mega, past, mega churches and celebrity pastors. And uh, how many of y'all are tired of celebrity pastors falling and, and leaders? One, I'm with you. Someone get her a chair, please. She deserves it. <clears throat> But Jesus says that it's not just the world that will be this way. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, he says that in the last days, he said that men will be lovers of self and self-indulgent. And you look at this verse and how harsh it is, and we think that it's, it's written to unbelievers, but it ends by saying, and they will carry a form of holiness that is void of the power of Jesus. And so this is actually religious people that he's talking about that actually have a form of holiness where on the outside they look clean, but on the inside they're found lacking. <clears throat> and I believe that this is kind of what's going on these days, right? Um, and it shows. In 2016 was the first time in American history that Christianity became a minority. And more adults for the first time identified as non-Christian. Every year since then, up until our last statistics in 2021, it's gone lower and lower and lower. After the coronavirus pandemic, one-third of Christians that left the church because uh, their church was shut down before the pandemic uh, said that they never came back. Out of that one-third, half of those, approximately 53%, said that they no longer find themselves to be religiously affiliated. Guys, the idea of of being more you as you stand in the flesh is very trendy. And the Bible says it'll tickle your ears, but it won't last. Um, Can you pull up Matthew 23, 25? Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. These are the religious leaders of his days. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but the inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. Jesus says to the, to the main religious leaders of his day, y'all look good on the outside, but I know what's going on the inside. It's very fascinating that when you see Jesus call people uh, serpents and snakes and, and just go off on people and, and toss tables and you know, do his thing, it's always towards the religious leaders. It's always the people that find themselves religious. And then when he's tired and and weak, he'll go with the sinners and have bread. And there's something about that where Jesus has no grid for inauthenticity. He'd rather be with someone who doesn't believe in him than someone that claims to and looks good on the outside, but on the inside is found lacking. We've reduced Christianity to outward aesthetic rather than the internal combustion of what happens when the hard heart of man is bought over and transformed by the presence of his creator and the tension of humanity clearing out his heart to more precisely host the presence of the Holy One. And the world can tell the difference. The world can tell the difference. 
So I want to really quickly give an example of two different sort of leaders, uh, both in the same role, uh, one after the other. One was inauthentic and one was authentic. And we're just going to look at the differences and the parallels between these two. And the two leaders talking about is Saul and David. And so Saul was the very first king of Israel. Israel said, Lord, it's great that you're, you know, you're up there above us, you're on a mountain, but we really like a king that we can see. And so the Lord's like, all right, I pick Saul. And so God brings up Saul. Saul in the Bible is, is known to be handsome. He's known to be a good looking fella. He's someone that we would all pick for, you know, prom king. <clears throat> but Saul um, doesn't necessarily obey the Lord very well. He looks like it on the outside, but he does these small things like he disobeys the Lord or, or he just, he's, he's, you can tell he's kind of cocky. And so in 1 Samuel 15, 28, the Lord sends Samuel right after Saul won a huge victory. The Lord said, go defeat these people. He defeats them. And then the Lord says, uh, sends Samuel and says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And so Saul, who just had a military uh, victory, who's about to go back to Israel in victory, hears that the Lord is about to rip the kingdom from him. So Saul says, all right, Samuel, I have one last request. I know the Lord is gonna rip the kingdom from me and he's gonna remove me from my throne, but I have one last request in 1 Samuel 15, 30. He says, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He says, I have one last request. And his last request isn't, can I apologize to the people of Israel for all the pain I've caused, for for the condition that we're in? His last request isn't, can I repent to the Lord before he rips the kingdom away from me? His last request is, okay, but hey, when we go back into town, can you just stand right beside me so it looks like the Lord is still with me? He says, listen, yeah, I know that internally I'm this and that and the Lord's gonna rip the kingdom, but, but I'd really still like to keep up the appearance of God being with me. So can you just stand beside me when we go back in one last time? Saul was dedicated to the outside of his cup. But the thing about cups is a clean cup on the outside looks good on a mantle, but you can't drink from it. And then there was David. David was Authentic. David prays these crazy prayers like, like Lord, like I'm just like messed up inside. Like, save me. Like, why would you even want to use me? He prays these prayers like, Lord, don't let me be too full lest I, uh, <clears throat> lest I get prideful and don't let me be too hungry lest I curse the name of the Lord. David prays these prayers like, like search me, Lord, know my heart. Try me, see if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And if you look at, this one of my favorite verses, if you look at that verse, and he says, try me, see if there's any wickedness in me. The, the, if you break down that verse, he's not saying, Lord, try me. This is, you're not going to find anything bad in me. Try me, see if there's any wickedness in me. You won't find it. No, this verse is saying, Lord, there is wickedness in me. There are things in me that don't need to be there that are going to bubble up. I need you to try me and clear them off. And the interesting part is that David sinned more than Saul. <laughs> We've got these chapters of Saul disobeying the Lord and, and, and doing all these things, but we have many chapters of, there's, there's not the amount of incriminating evidence against Saul as there was for David. Saul, I mean, David slept with his, his, his bro's wife and then got him killed. 
David committed adultery. David had someone murdered. David, there are chapters about David being judged by the Lord because of his sin. Yet the Lord was more impressed by the authenticity of his heart about saying, Lord, I know that I'm not right than he was with his actual sin. Now that doesn't make sense to me, but I know it's really good. <laughs> like I couldn't do that, but just the fact that God does is amazing. <clears throat> and in fact, even though David sinned more than Saul, because of the authenticity of his heart, God was so impressed by David's heart that he actually makes him the godfather of his son. He says, David, you sinned and sinned and sinned even after I made you a king, but for all of eternity, I want my son to be known as the son of David. <clears throat> he could have been, Jesus could have been known as the son of Saul. But God says, I want my son, when I take on human flesh, I don't want to be known as the guy who looks like he has it together, but is inauthentic. I want to be known, I want to be associated with the man that can sin yet comes to me every time. But here's another thing. Saul was anointed though. Saul wasn't some bum. He wasn't some unbeliever. He wasn't some um, person that was pretending to have the power of the Lord on him. Saul actually had the hand of the Lord on him. But here's the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the key. You can have the power of the Lord on you, but not let it go to work in you. Saul let the presence of God over him be greater than the work of the presence of the Lord in him. And this is actually one of the biggest downfalls for, for believers. We seek the, the power of the Lord, but we don't seek his presence in the things we consider little, right? The stuff in me that, 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 I'm, that, that is keeping me from intimacy with God. We rather focus on, you know, watching sermons on how to heal the sick and raise the dead uh, than we would, you know, a less trendy message like how to deal with the sin in your life, right? But here's the warning that Jesus himself gives us in Matthew 7, to 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not cast out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus foreshadows that there will be people that come to him in the last day that say, look, we've committed miracles in your name. Look, you came to work on us. And Jesus says, yeah, but you don't look like me inside. You know, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit in us, the very writing of the Holy Spirit on our hearts is, is the fulfillment of the law. And so he's looking at these people and he said, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And, and I want us to be very cautious because throughout, God can speak through a donkey, y'all. <clears throat> I know we see leaders fall and all this stuff, but it doesn't mean that God didn't work through them. We see them fall because, because they actually let the Lord work through them, but they never let the Lord work in them. Wow. 
And so if we are going to be people that make it till the end, that don't get the richness of this life or any other ensnarements to catch us uh, in falling, we need to be people that are authentic, that are able to open up our hearts, that are able to unveil the ugliness and the things that we're working on, not so that we're shamed about it, but so that the Lord can work on it. Another quote. Adam fell when he ate the fruit, but he stayed fallen when he hid from God. And so Adam fell when he, hit, when he ate the fruit, but then God comes to him knowing that he ate the fruit and he says, why are you where you are? And he just remains hiding. And so Adam is a good example of inauthenticity. You know, and David kind of breaks that when he says, Lord, I have fallen, but here I am. You know, there's this uh, saying in the Old Testament, it says, is not, is, is not Saul also one of the prophets? You know, and there's this story where uh, Saul goes to capture David and he sends his men and then the Lord's like defense mechanism is the Holy Spirit falls on them and Saul's men like fall on the ground outside of this house that David and Samuel are in and they start prophesying. And so Saul sends another group of men and they start prophesying. And Saul sends another group and they start prophesying. And so Saul's like, what's going on? He goes out himself to reach David and the spirit of the Lord falls on Saul and he starts prophesying and David and Samuel like just dip. And, 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 this, and this quote of, is not Saul also one of the prophets is, is used by the Israelites because they're saying, hey, you prophesy great, but so did our fallen leader. That's not impressive, bro. <clears throat> So, deep breath. So the Lord wants us to be authentic. The combination of the Lord working on us and in us is something that looks like, it's called sanctification. It's what it looks like when, when Jesus has actually more access and actually can entrust us to more things, right? You can be rebellious and not let the Lord work in you and he'll do some things on you, but there's a greater measure that's attached to your calling that can only come when you let the Lord work in you. He can do his plans over you, right? He can touch other people with his hand on you. But if you wanna live out your calling and his hand in you, you gotta open up. And so the heavy part's out the way. Practical tips. So what is, me personally, one of the biggest ways that I can be authentic and let the Lord kind of dissect and move in my life is this, the Bible. Y'all seen it? Some of y'all got multiple of them. A lot of them are dusty, I know. <clears throat> the Bible is 66 books written by over 40 different authors from fishermen to kings to poets to prophets to people out in wildernesses to people uh, exiled on remote islands. And these 66 books all talk about one story. And the writers of these books didn't read the other books. In fact, these books were found over the course of thousands of years. And so it's this idea that it's very convenient that we have the Bible but even the New Testament authors didn't have the New Testament. And so it's this idea that it wasn't man that wrote the Bible, it was the Lord that did. 
The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. He's the one that actually preserved it. You know, when you look at the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were actually written many years after Jesus' death. And scholars know that, that these people didn't have, you know, the way that they were found and, you know, the, the, the books of the Bible have been found in, in caves, in libraries, in just random spots in over three different continents. That's how we get them. And the, 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 the gospels are so unique in that there's so much overlap yet differences that scholars believe that there's another document out there called document Q. And they just can't wrap their head around the fact that, that there's so much intricate detail between one gospel and the other, and they find different gospels found by different people. And then they, they, they kind of theorize this document cue where they're saying, you know, the first, the synoptic gospels have to be, uh, maybe they all read one document and then wrote after that. And so they're trying to find the existence of another, um, <clears throat> another testament to explain away how it was so well-preserved. And it's very interesting because even in the differences in the gospel, uh, the four gospels are so unique because they each talk about Jesus in a different way. Matthew, Jesus is the son of God. Mark, he's the son of man. Luke, he is the, uh, the servant of men. John, he is the lamb of God. Those are the four big takeaways. And it's just this, this same message, but in four different ways. And even the New Testament writers, you know, they're in hiding. They're being persecuted. They're being hunted down. And, and they even write in their gospels, they say, it was the Holy Spirit that brought these things to our remembrance. Yeah. <clears throat> um, can, I, can we do the Bible, the first Bible picture? <clears throat> Now, this is on the far left would be Genesis. On the far right would be uh, Revelations. And the blue line is the Old Testament. The red line is the New Testament. And these are writers that didn't have access to the other books. And these are the connections between the books that we find in the Bible. The references of the same sort of topics, the same sort of, uh, of verses, and the same sort of messages. Can we do the next picture? Same thing. So left is Genesis, on the right is Revelations. And these are people that didn't read each other's work and they're talking about the same thing. These are all the, the, the mismatch and the cross-references of biblical um, overlap. And, and why we get to read it as one convenient story, but they didn't. They all had very different experiences with the Lord and we get to see the accumulation of them all. And the power of the Bible is that it's God-breathed that the very one that wrote the Bible is actually living and alive and is breathed over this book. And so <clears throat> I've studied graduate theology at Liberty. I've had to read the Bible a lot, <clears throat> and I still do. But some of my best times reading the Bible, I don't even remember what I read, <laughs> right? I mean, like, it might be like weeks later where I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do remember that, or I'm having like a... Um, a civil conversation with someone. And, you know, I remember these, these, these verses, but the majority of the time when I read the Bible, I like, I'm thinking about it and I, and I write and I close the book and I just feel peace. And, you know, I got saved about 10 years ago. Um, I encountered the Holy Spirit for the first time just a few years ago. And it was funny because before I had a grid for the Holy Spirit, I would read the Bible and it would give me peace and joy and love. I felt more connected with God. And I, and I thought, because I didn't have a grid for the Holy Spirit, I thought that it was because I did the action of reading the Bible, right? And so I associated the power of the Holy Spirit with my own action reading the Bible. And it became a thing where I told myself, I have to read the Bible this many chapters every morning. I, you know, I would tell people, you need to read your Bible because you know, that's how you, you, um, 
you know, this and that, but I attributed it to my action of reading the Bible rather than now where I can understand that it's actually me encountering God's spirit through the text that he wrote. And so now I study my Bible a lot, but a lot of the times I'll just pick it up because I just want to encounter God's spirit. You know, I can worship and feel his spirit. I can be with people and feel his spirit. I can be in community. But a lot of the times for me personally, I just have to read my Bible. And I don't remember what I read, but the very uh, timeless God that brought this together somehow, even in the times where I feel shame or guilt and I don't feel like worshiping, I don't feel like praying, I just open my Bible and read and encounter this very same God. And it's kind of like a bypass, you know? Kind of like a cheat code. And so if we can pull up Hebrews 4.12. Sorry for those of you taking notes. I'm talking really fast. I'm making a lot of progress. <clears throat> for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God, the word here, logos, is, is more like the logical, the written word of God, right? Um, <clears throat> living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. <clears throat> the interesting part about this verse is that the original word doesn't say two-edged sword. It says makaira. And makaira doesn't mean two-edged sword. It means it's the name of a certain type of sword, right? It's like um, if I wrote, uh, you know, iPhone, and like 2,000 years later, someone translated to smartphone. I'm like, hold up, there's a big difference. Like one is like green, one is blue. And so the Jewish people that he wrote to would have been very familiar with this Makaira because it, because it, it, it kind of, this is the, the Roman short sword. The Makaira is, you know, in, in, for Romans, they would call it the gladius, used by gladiators. Have you ever watched the movie Gladiator, those little tiny swords they use? Yeah, oh boy. <laughs> And this was actually, if you're a, a history buff or just a nerd like me, um, <clears throat> this was actually deemed the sword that won the Roman Empire. And there's a reason that it's two-edged. So when Rome is conquering all these territories and all these things, they come across the Gauls, right? The tribes up north, these big bronze fellows that count their protein and like eat a lot. <clears throat> and the Gauls were these crazy warriors and they would have these swords that some of them were up to five foot tall, right? I'm 5'11", probably like 6'2 in boots. But these swords were like five foot long and these Gauls, you know, there's writings of them lifting the sword up and in one swing, they could behead five people. And because these were slashing swords caused to ca made to cause damage, they only needed to be sharp on one side because it wasn't for stabbing, it was for slashing. And so you want a heavy end and you want a, a, a tapered uh, sharp end. And so um, all these other people tried to conquer the Gauls of the North and they, they came across this resistance, right? I mean, these guys are some, they can fight, they got hands. And so they came up with the Roman short sword, the gladius or the machaira. Their tactic to beat this big sword was a sword that was tiny, right? Makes sense, right? Nope. There, what they did was they created a sword that instead of five foot long was about two foot long, a glorified knife. And they made it tiny and sharp on each end. And the idea here was that while you're taking your time to, to pick up this big sword, right? I'm gonna come around, 
done. Walk away like nothing happened. And it's sharp on two ends because it's not made to slash, it's made to dissect. And these galls, prop time. So it would, you know, this is, this is about two foot long. Yeah, this is a, this is a, this is an exact replica of a Roman sword. No, I'm just kidding. It's some Lord of the Rings. Um, this Frodo sword. And so, you know, they would have swords that were about from my neck down, the Gauls. And these Romans would come in and, you know, these Gauls were also known for having massive armor, right? And they're fighting other people with big swords. So they have big armor. But the thing about big armor is you're going to have big cracks in your armor, or you're going to have little cracks in your armor. And so the Romans found out that if we can spot, rather than having to chop against their armor, if we can find a little spot in their armor and take this tiny two-edged sword in which surgical precision, we just insert and walk away like nothing ever happened, we're going to win. And so that's exactly what they did. They decided they're going to have large shields with tiny little swords that can cut with surgical precision. They would have scouts go out and look at the, they would fight the Gauls first and find their armor. They'd find the weak links and they would train about just surgical precision. And so this idea that it's sharper than a Mechira, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart is is this idea that the word of God, when used, we've all seen it used like a five-foot sword, right? (laughs) Yeah. But if used through the power of the Holy Spirit with an authentic heart, it actually works like a machaira. Where it, it doesn't have to take off every limb on its way to cut, you know, what you're trying to cut. It can actually find and locate and pinpoint and get the specific spot it's meant to get. Right? Think of it like a surgeon. Right? If, if you've got a growth on your arm, you're not going to cut the whole arm off. You're just going to go, go under the knife and you're going to cut just the spot that was, that was you know, not right. The difference between uh, a, two-foot, a five-foot sword and a surgeon's knife is that a five-foot sword will leave you damaged. A, a knife will leave you healed. Right? And so I'm going to give you one visual before we, uh, we close up, oh, who wants the sword? Okay. You want it? Yeah. Everybody else was shy. Make sure you take that wherever you go into lunch today. Just put it on your back. And so can we pull up that verse again? One more visual, but you got to be a little bit more creative with me. And so the idea of the two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. What does that even mean, division of soul and spirit? Okay, so we were born in the flesh. Paul says we have a flesh, right? This physical body made of the dust of the ground that was cursed. We have a soul in us, right, which is who we are as a person. These are thoughts, our character, our intentions, our mind, um, these are emotions, this is our soul. And then we have a spirit. And so before Jesus, we were a soul inside of a flesh, right? Think of it like two chairs. And this soul was seated on the flesh because it had nowhere else to sit. And then Jesus came and what does he do? He doesn't make bad things good. He makes dead things alive. 
And so he plants another chair inside of you and gives you another option for you to sit your soul. So think of it, I want you to think of it like a pendulum. There's the flesh on one side and then the spirit on the other side. And your whole Christian life, right, is the fact that at one point your pendulum was only on the flesh side because it had nowhere else to swing. And Jesus puts his spirit in you. And for the rest of your life, this process of sanctification means that I don't get rid of the flesh, but I have to learn to swing my pendulum more and more towards the side of the spirit, right? That's why Paul never says that we stop sinning or defeat the flesh. Paul says, live by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. He says, if your pendulum swings this way, it won't be over here. And so the idea of the word of God is the two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit means that there are things in your life that you've gone through, there's trauma, there's even acts of the enemy um, that divide, that create a distance between your soul and spirit. And so there are things in life where you're trying to swing between your soul and you're trying to swing your pendulum to the spirit. There are divisions right there, right? We've all felt them. And the beauty is that the word of God is sharpened a two-edged sword that can pierce as far as the division of the soul and the spirit. And so when I encounter God through this Bible, I can go to him specifically for things that I'm working on, certain divisions, or I, sometimes I'll just read it and, and I'll find that there were divisions there I didn't know were there and I just see him just with a knife and just cut them off. And so the idea is that when I'm in my word, it detaches anything, any division that's causing my soul and my spirit to be disconnected, right? And allows me to kind of swing and live by the spirit, okay? The first step is authenticity. If I don't, if I don't go to God knowing that there's something in me that's causing me to, to swing one way or the other, he can't put me under the knife, can he? I can read my Bible and inauthentically and never apply it to me and it just turns into head knowledge and not soul restoration. I've done it. <laughs> and I know a lot of things and, and, and it's funny like when I preach up here because like people are always so impressed. You know, I've done like graduate theology and apologetics and, and people are like always impressed by that and I'm like, bro, like that was nothing. Like if anything, when I, got the, when I studied that stuff, like it just made me sick of like learning other people's thoughts. <laughs> I'm like, a lot of people wrote a lot of things about God. <laughs> But it's this idea that, that God uses people, not who, who know the most, but who have authentically uh, created the most cuts in the division who live by the Spirit, right? John the Baptist, he didn't read the Bible. He didn't have a Bible, <laughs> right? You look at these great heroes of the faith. You look at uh, even John, a different John that wrote uh, the Gospel of John. He barely even could write, he could barely read and write. You know, John, the book of John is actually one of the, uh, <clears throat> if you're ever learning um, Greek, it's, it's, you can, you'll study that, that, um, that book because it's written so simply with such basic language and it's so short that it's actually an easy way to learn a different language. Yet God uses him because of his authentic heart. All right, as we get ready to close. The evidence of the Holy Spirit, listen, the, the power of the Holy Spirit on you, we can all see. We've seen them through fallen leaders. We've seen them through anyone. But the evidence of the Holy Spirit living inside of you is not that you no longer sin, but it's that you are at war with your sin. 
the Holy Spirit in you, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in you is not that you no longer sin, right? Paul says, I gotta kill my flesh daily. But it's that there's this thing inside of you that wars against the very divisions between your soul and your spirit. Merriam-Webster's definition of authentic is conforming to an original so as to reproduce essential features. Authenticity is like a heat-seeking missile. It doesn't mean, God, I'm so broken and I'm so wicked. No, you're sanctified. But it's saying, Lord, in my sanctification, in my righteousness, there are parts of me that are still making me live by me and not by you. And it's a heat-seeking missile when you open yourself up to the Lord for you to, for God to actually cut the attachments and for you to live more by the Spirit. The purpose of authenticity is not shame, but to destroy anything that would cause you to hide from the healing hand of Jesus. And lastly, I'll say this. God's purpose of authenticity is to set the foundation for intimacy without shame. Ultimately, it's to experience intimacy without shame. To go to him without hiding your sins behind you or to have you know, fig leaves in front of you. It's to, it's to say, Lord, here I am, dirty and all. I'm gonna experience intimacy without shame. So I'm gonna pray and we'll close out. So Jesus, we just love you. We thank you. We just, we recognize that salvation is a free gift, God, but that sanctification is gonna take some work. So Lord, I thank you that if I never did another thing for you, Lord, if I just died today, that that you would accept me into heaven, Lord. But while I'm here, Lord, that, that you allow me to go through this process so that I can look more like you for myself and for my neighbors, that we can be a living testament for you and really for our own good, Lord, so that you can free us from anything that that keeps us from what we were meant to be, which is people that experience the presence of the Lord. So God, whether it's today, tonight, next month, or even just for the rest of our lives, Lord, just continue to show us the ways that we are being inauthentic, the parts of our heart that we've hidden from you, the areas of our life that we've covered in shame, You know, the first step of of surgery is a consultation. So Lord, I just pray, Lord, for just more consultations, Lord, that, that we would just come into your office and just say, Lord, there's something there. I don't know what it is, but just show me what it is so that you can go to work.